we, uh, we rightly place a lot of focus in our congregation on the experience and practice of gratitude, sharing gratitude together. Um, gratitude is a way of sustaining and strengthening our relationship with each other and with Jesus. Today we learn that the practice of gratitude is wide enough to include all of our human emotions, including lament. And in fact, it's essential for us to share our laments, even our complaints to God. Um, it isn't easy to do this, though, to lament, to complain. In fact, it's very countercultural to do that. Well, we gripe a lot in this country, <laughs> but we don't really like lamenting so much. Don't know how to do it very well. Um, and so it's important for us to see uh, clearly the examples given to us in Scripture where the great people of God actually pour out their hearts in this way before him. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to uh, open up to uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, where we'll be spending our time this morning. And what I'd like to do really is just to kind of slow read this lament to really see the elements of it and what's going on in the life of this prophet, uh, this great prophet who we know a lot about his inner world. If those of you who know a little bit about Jeremiah, this won't be the first time you'll have encountered a lament by Jeremiah. So a little of the context, um, uh, the, 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 the history of Israel in 30 seconds, uh, you'll remember that the nation of Israel is first governed by judges, uh, but they long for a king. God grants them a request, and the first three kings are Saul, David, and Solomon, who govern a united kingdom from north to south. But Solomon's kids don't do so well. The kingdom splits in two, 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, the northern tribe called Israel, the southern tribe called Judah. Israel is a little sliver of land that kind of lies between the great empires of the ages, Egypt to the south, and Assyria and Babylon, and others to the north. And Israel is often kind of caught in between the pressure of the competition between these two uh, regions of great powers. Puts a lot of pressure on uh, Israel, and particularly when they're weak and in seasons of unfaithfulness to God, they get very confused and very tempted by the nations around them. They indulge in, uh, what can I call them, idolatrous means of protecting themselves. So it's a bit messy. Um, their idolatry eventually leads to judgment. And in 722 uh, BC, uh, 722 years uh, before Christ, uh, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. And it leaves the remaining uh, two tribes in the north, the kingdom of Judah, centered around Jerusalem, uh, to muddle through until they eventually fall as well in the year 587. And they're off to exile in Babylon and Egypt. And they, uh, the page turns for the next season of, of their experience uh, as God's people now in exile. The prophets kind of span this kingly realm uh, to remind Israel who they are and to try to call them back to fidelity. They're, they read the signs of the times carefully. They proclaim boldly. They foretell God's word of judgment, but they also envision what it's like on the other side of repentance. They are poets. 
They speak in symbols and metaphors that they use in word and also in action. Jeremiah is especially helpful for us because not only do we see Jeremiah's public ministry, but we get a view into his own heart and the struggles that he has in delivering his prophetic word. So in 587, we see the fading strength of the old regime. And Israel at the time of Jeremiah was not afraid as they should have been. They were uncomfortable though. They could feel the pressure around them bearing down and their response and their unfaithfulness was to use the gifts of God to kind of placate themselves. They thought to themselves, well, we have the temple. We have the temple and so we're good. We got the palace. I mean, God set up these things, and there's a way he's going to turn his back on us. So they kind of use these religious symbols uh, to kind of make deals and, and kind of pacify themselves and kind of uh, help them kind of enjoy the status quo. Um, it, they, they weren't able to see that the old world's fading away right under their eyes. Um, and so they bore down on their kind of idolatrous control. And Jeremiah was there to say, hey, look, the old world's passing away. All right, God himself can't stand your use of these holy things, and he'll destroy them. He's not dedicated to the temple. He's not dedicated to your religious practices and your Sabbath-keeping. All of that, will, what, what he wants is your heart. And so in chapter 19, uh, which precedes our chapter this morning, Jeremiah kind of delivers a prophetic word that's meant to break this spell he said the holy city of Jerusalem is going to become a city like Tophet. Tophet is a valley that kind of skirts the city of Jerusalem where all the trash was burned, and it's often where pagan rituals were conducted. In fact, they would sacrifice children there, believe it or not. It's hard to describe how bad that is. I mean, it's horrifying for us just to hear about it. Um, it's hard to imagine it happening there. And so when... Jeremiah says the holy city, Jerusalem, is going to be the city of Tophet. That is really awful to hear. And then in chapter 19, verse 15, he gives the reason. It's because Israel has stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. A stiff neck is a sign of pride. You will not bend in humility you will not repent. You have stopped up your ears. You will no longer hear the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah gives this word, and resistance to it is very strong, and it does not go well for Jeremiah. You'll read in the first, chapter, the first few verses of uh, chapter 20 that a priest named Pashur hears these words, and uh, his response to them, again, is not to bend his neck, but rather to persecute the messenger. He beats and imprisons Jeremiah, throws him in shackles, and Jeremiah, when he's released, announces that Pashur will die in exile as a false prophet. So this is hard stuff. It's hard to be a prophet. And what follows now in the passage that we read this morning is Jeremiah's uh, Jeremiah's uh, experience of saying these things and going through these things in public 
Jeremiah is a human. He's faithful to his vocation, but he's vulnerable to the tensions that it creates. And so in chapter 20, we turn from this bold, firm, unflinching public witness to a man who exposes his vulnerability and his weakness in his own personal experience. You may recall not too long ago that Steve preached a sermon from Lamentation chapter 3. Those of you who are uh, maybe familiar with that passage, this is another expression of Jeremiah's uh, uh, grief. Jeremiah's lament uh, shares some common elements that you'll find in other passages of Scripture that depict lament. Many of the Psalms and, of course, Jesus' own life, which we'll come back to a little bit here and there. Some of the elements of a lament are a complaint that's made, an appeal or an affirmation of God's nature. In other words, here's my complaint. God, you're, you're just, you're righteous. It shouldn't be this way. There's uh, an appeal to it. There's a petition or a cry for justice. Please make it better. Oftentimes, there will be a closure of a word of praise. And we'll, we'll kind of move through some of these phases slowly so that you can see it's not just a formula that, that, that the prophet invokes to kind of manufacture a lament. There's actually something happening inside that causes it to work this way. And what I'm hoping today is that by digging into this a little bit, it'll help us in our lament before God. It starts out rather vigorous and rather shocking. You have deceived me, Jeremiah says. You have deceived me. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. Basically, what he's saying is the deception comes is as a reference to Jeremiah's calling from chapter 1, verse 8. And I I will just go ahead and read that now, um, just so that it's in your mind, because Jeremiah is referring back to the season of his calling. And in that time, what God told Jeremiah is, uh, he he says this to him. Um, Jeremiah is called, and it's an amazing story. Uh, You can read about it there. But uh, God goes on to say, Do not say, I am only a youth, For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand on Jeremiah's mouth and said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. It's a momentous calling, and there's more to it. It's very dramatic. You can read about it. And, and, and essentially, this is what Jeremiah's calling into question. He said, remember that? You deceived me. You, 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 it was a bait and switch. I couldn't say no. You prevailed over me. It's a sense of being overpowered is what he's trying to get at here. Is he not saying that God's telling lies. He's trying to say that you oversold. But because you're God... Right, I, I, I couldn't say no. Now I feel duped, Jeremiah says, as he looks back on that source and origin of his calling. He feels betrayed. He feels treated unfairly by God because God's power is insurmountable. His calling was irresistible, and now the burden of rejection has become too heavy 
And Jeremiah is saying he has no will to stand up underneath the weight of it. It's hard. It's hard when we're trying to do the right thing and the results hurt. When we embark on a pathway of obedience and it only ends up in suffering because of it, it doesn't seem right. It's not what we thought when we started. Aren't the righteous supposed to prevail? What happens when the righteous suffer because of their righteousness? This is a perennial question. Right, man, doesn't it say in the Psalms, here's Psalm 37, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. That's true. But sometimes it doesn't seem to happen that way. And if the origin of our journey started with God, who else do we address when the destination seems to end so poorly? And if at that moment we bottle ourselves up and say, well, good people don't question God, well, then we're, we're in a bad place. And the Bible actually doesn't encourage us in this way. I mean, Jeremiah fantasizes about shutting his mouth forever. That seems like a reasonable solution. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire. I cannot hold it in. He wants to say, well, we tried, we failed, we're done now. I mean, isn't conventional wisdom that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Seems to be obvious that the best thing to do is to stop doing the same thing over and over again. But Jeremiah finds God's overpowering demand on him to be like an unquenchable fire. So to hold it in is even more burdensome than, to, than it is to express it. And to express it brings no relief because all that seems to pour forth is violence and destruction. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. He says, for whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. It's like he can hardly control himself. And, of course, it leads to the same discouraging outcome. Rejection. Punishment. Isolation. Mockery. Imprisonment. Beatings. At this stage in the lament, what we see Jeremiah experiencing is profound disorientation. And that's what it's going to feel like when we're in the midst of our lament. At this moment, he's giving voice to the thing that hurts. And it's going to be a little disorienting. Notice that as Jeremiah opens up fully to the emotional power of his complaint, his fullest comprehension of God's presence is momentarily obscured. What's alive to him right now is his own experience. And as he gives vent to it, his comprehension of God in his fullness is temporarily obscured. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In this moment, Jeremiah does not recall that, God's, uh, that God promised that his words would not only destroy, but that they would also build up. Right? His complaint here is that he says, whenever I speak, I cry out violence and destruction. That's not an exact quote of what God said, 
it does get the destruction part right, but there's something that has been left out. If you recall God's promise in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Well, Jeremiah is not feeling the building planting part yet. And so when he's suffering in his lament, when he's expressing that to God, that part of it is not so present to him. Nor what's present to him is God's thundering prophetic word in all of its power, because now what seems to assert itself even more are the whispered threats of the opposition. God's voice has kind of shrunk. And now what is he hearing? I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. This is kind of mockery, because if you read back into early into the chapter, Jeremiah tells Pasher, this wicked priest, the Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. Now what is he hearing back? Right? He's hearing the whispered threats of the opposition saying, terror on every side. He's saying, denounce him, denounce him. All of his close friends saying, watch for his fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Jeremiah feels quite vulnerable. I mean, after all, if God can deceive him, then how much more can his enemies deceive him? Jeremiah is hearing these familiar words now turned against him. That's overwhelm. You know, when, when, when you say to God, you have deceived me, you're opening yourself up to the fallibility of your own self. Maybe you're the one that's being deceived, Jeremiah. I mean, now, you're, now you're, your mind and your heart are chaotic. Right? Now the very words that you said to others are coming back to persecute yourself. Now you're confused. You're disoriented. You can't tell where's the true word. Where are the words orienting from? So the glorious vision of renewal that Jeremiah is also to bring forth becomes opaque in this harsh light of opposition. The words get lost in the cacophony. The memory fails in the midst of this kind of concrete rejection. Have you ever felt this way before? Where things just go gray? You, you can't remember what was said. The things that you once said, now maybe you feel ashamed of saying them. Maybe you're the one that is to blame. Maybe the terror that you persecuted, that you prophesied to other people is coming back to haunt you yourself. You, you can't really remember what the promise had been originally. Jeremiah is in a very vulnerable place right now, disoriented, angry, isolated, opposed, afraid. Why do we have these complaints in Scripture, especially such strongly worded complaints like this? They help us to see what it actually looks like to be honest with God. This is what it looks like. It's messy. Now, Jeremiah is still personally engaged with God, and I'm going to come back to that in a second, but he's feeling disoriented. Jeremiah's humanness is on display. He's not a superman with limited, limit, limitless capacity. He's neither a mannequin who simply stands erect and perfect in the garb of a prophet with no range of emotion. And I sometimes fear that's where a lot of us are. Like, we know how to be polite and civil. That's, 
what we're trained to do. And we develop a mannequin-like spirituality. Not a lot of range and scope. So we say the prayers, you know, we, we go through the liturgy, we say the right words, and our range of emotion is like that. There's not really any forcefulness to it. Christ is right, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Great. Okay, we said that, now we move forward in the liturgy. What on earth are we saying when we say that? It's very helpful for us, but it's very difficult because we don't like to feel disoriented. It's very uncomfortable, but it's very important. Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is doing here, he's not just being crabby. He chooses to bring the fullness of himself into his dialogue with God, and that's what we want to be able to do together. It's to bring the fullness of who we are. I often felt in my prayer life when I started encountering this, by no choice of my own, but more just by the pressures and challenges in my life, that I was often saying the least important things to God and leaving out the most important things. You know, like if my prayer life were here and my, you know, my inner journal was here, there was a little here and there was a lot here. I'm like, oh, I wish I could tell God this, but I would never think of doing that. And I felt God saying, yeah, let's turn that upside down, <laughs> right? Just get it out there. He, that's what Jeremiah is doing. He's choosing to bring the fullness of himself into dialogue with God, because if it's not in dialogue with God, where is it? And you'll see he calls God by name. This is very important. His first word is, oh, Lord. Of course, it, that's Yahweh. It's the name of God. Jewish people and Christian people, we don't say that name, really. The tetragrammaton, the four letters. We think it's pronounced Yahweh. Well, Jewish people today will say Adonai. We say Lord. Here, Jeremiah is calling God by his own name, and he calls out to him, Lord, I have something to say to you. He addresses God personally in direct address. He says, you have deceived me. He doesn't even say, I feel like you have deceived me. He doesn't speak elliptically. I get the sense that you might be deceiving me, but that can't possibly be true. No, he just says it. You just, because that's true of his feeling. He's not blaming God. He's not accusing God in that judgmental way. He's naming the thing that's going on in him. He's saying, he's talking about a real process. For Jeremiah, this isn't hypothetical. He's not making a statement about God's nature. He's saying, you said one thing and something else happened, and I feel overpowered by you. He presents himself in full disclosure and concretely. Now, there's a full range of emotion here. Jeremiah is mining the depths of his calling. He's, he's searching for answers. He's probing his actions and his reactions. He's testing his assumptions. He's running down all of his options till they're dead ends. He's very active what's going on here. And what Jeremiah is showing us is that he believes in a vital God. This is a God with personality. This is a God with vitality. Jeremiah's complaint show us, shows that he experienced God as living and real. 
That's why he's contending with him. This isn't a hypothetical God, a distant God. That was Israel's problem. That's the problem he's trying to show to the people around him. They're treating God as if he's some kind of static deity that they can just kind of manipulate with power symbols. That's their problem. Jeremiah worships a living God. And that's why he goes to him with this problem of contention and he wrestles because God is powerful. God is able to resist and contradict Jeremiah. God is able to change course. He's able to have his way. And if we see that Jeremiah is neither a Superman nor a mannequin, but a human, then we also see the same thing, that God is not passive or distant or static. He's also living and active. Jeremiah did not think of God as an agent of Jeremiah's will or a guarantor of his comfort. That's what made him different from others around him. He knew God was sovereign. He knew God was personal. But he also knew that God is good. His trust in that goodness was being shaken by his experience. It's not that Jeremiah didn't wonder whether God existed. It's, he was questioning whether or not his character was true. It had to be said. It had to be acknowledged. God, you have deceived me. You've overpowered me. You're stronger than me. You pushed me into circumstances that I find overwhelming. You are responsible for this. You can feel the attempt in Jeremiah to bring his inward struggle to light. The discourse, very interestingly, in, in verse 8, moves from this kind of second person addressed to God directly, and it moves into kind of a third-person address. You'll see in verse 8, he references the word of the Lord has become for me, etc., etc. He's not saying, God, your word has come for me. It's almost as if now Jeremiah is talking to himself. He's saying, yeah, let, this is what it's like for me. You can, you can imagine him in prayer speaking to God and then, and then turning inward to kind of mull over what it is that he's trying to get out here. Now he's preaching to himself. And notice what happens when he does this. He's, he actually exhorts himself. In verse 11, he says, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. This isn't what God is saying to Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah is preaching to himself. It's like his rumination is making progress. He's speaking himself, or as the Puritans would say, he's preaching the gospel to himself. He finds himself preaching to himself, and in so doing, what happens? He's able to recover something of the original promise. I don't even know if he did it consciously, but the forgotten word now comes forward above the whispered threats. He says, the Lord is with me. That's exactly what God told him way back in his calling. He said, I will be with you. And now the rumination breaks forth into this exhortation of a remembered word. In verse 8 of chapter 1, God says, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And what is it that comes out of Jeremiah's struggle? He says to himself, The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Now the memory is ruminating and kicking in. 
but now it's carried forward and developed. God says, I will be with you and deliver you. And now a new metaphor, a new symbol emerges for Jeremiah as a dread warrior. The words taking flesh in his imagination, a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors, not me, will stumble. They will not overcome me. His probing before God, his probing, I would say, with God, uncovers the forgotten words and imaginative symbols that compel renewed vigor, that restore initiative, that reconnect Jeremiah to his mission. He's discovering the integrity of his own heart and mind before God. And he rises again then to second-person discourse, that personal engagement. He says in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, now we're back to the conversation, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. Now it is not God who deceives or overpowers, but God who sees an amazing thing that we're watching here. The lament in second person addressed to God, the, the, inner conversa- the, inner, the inner dialogue that Jeremiah has with himself before God, with God, the emergence of forgotten words but now reimagined with new power, the discovery of his own integrity, the renewal of his conversation with God now in a different mode is what we're seeing. That's why this complaint is not an act of closure. It's not Jeremiah's judgment of God. It's not a word of separating from God or blame. Those are doors closed kind of ideas. Jeremiah's disclosing. He's opening himself. He's revealing his heart to God. It comes out messy, but it is nonetheless an act of openness, of confession. And that openness initiates a probing exploration that unearths even more than he had been able to experience before. He experiences that God is still true, still durable, still strong. God is not afraid of this kind of prayer. He's not afraid of your words. Jesus himself shows us how to do it. He wept, he cried out, he lamented. And in so doing, he remained open to the vitality of God, even to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, more than any other, shows us the opposite of a hard heart or a stiff-necked, even on the cross. At ground zero of agony, he doesn't shut the door. And where does he turn for solace? But to Psalm 22, the psalm of lament, par excellence. I don't think, therefore, that it's startling or disjunctive for Jeremiah to conclude his lament with a praise in verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Is this some kind of perfunctory religious language? I don't think so. It's a catharsis. Jeremiah, through his struggle, has found God to be very true to his word. And the release of 
energy there causes Jeremiah to want to then return to his vocation and reconnect with his people. He's delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. We see the same thing in Psalm 22, this conclusion of praise. Psalm 22 that Jesus was mindful of on the cross and may have even recited in full if he had the strength starts out, why have you forsaken me? Very similar to Jeremiah's opening words. But how does Psalm 22 end? The congregation, the people of God, will pro proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has triumphed. Now we see that Jeremiah is reconnected not only to the experience of God himself, but to Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's people, whom now he enjoins to share in the praise. He's once again a prophet, exhorting his people to praise. He's reintegrated his present experience back into the promise of God. Deliverance is present to Jeremiah now through God's word, not through the circumstances. The circumstances are still overwhelming. Jeremiah gets carted off to Egypt in exile. What's changed aren't so much the circumstances, but the foundation of his faith. Because now the promise of God has been restored to even more powerful than the circumstances around him. In fact, he's, the circumstances are now already past tense. Um, he says, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. Past tense. It's almost as though the circumstances were already resolved in the promise of God, which is now more real to him. It's often in the honesty of prayer that the vitality of God's word and the reality of his presence comes through to us. It's oftentimes in times of great testing that unearth these very places where God wants to work and to remind us of his promises, to affirm his plans for us. To be a follower of Jesus, as our gospel reading confirmed to us this morning, isn't to pursue stability and security. And like Israel, we are very tempted by these things. but we're emissaries of a kingdom. We're leaning in. We're leaning forward into the momentum of God's breaking in kingdom. Our eyes are supposed to be opened. We're supposed to see who and what is around us. We're meant to notice the people who were lonely or afraid or poor or hungry or struggling or trapped in their own sinfulness. We're meant to create opportunities for reconciliation we're meant to intercede in prayer. We're meant to be engaged as the people around us are suffering from the passing away of this horrible culture that gives us the illusion of security, but now people are unstable in it. We want to be ministers of reconciliation. That's the origin of Jeremiah's complaint. It's because he's faithful that he becomes disoriented in conflict. When we participate in the kingdom, we're going to get caught up in the very real push and pull of resistance from others and from within ourselves. We're going to feel disoriented. I'll just close with very briefly here. I know time to be done. But, you know, like many of you, I've been through my own kind of journey of disorientation. When I was a college student contemplating seminary education, a friend of my father's who was a seminary professor said to him, Tell your son that the road to ministry is strewn with many casualties. 
I wonder what I should do with this information. Was I to turn aside? How would I protect myself from unknown foes that apparently felt others more well-equipped than me? Well, I did go to seminary. I did travel along the road of vocational ministry, and I was a casualty. My last endeavor in full-time ministry was not a success by common standards. Our experience was beset with insurmountable challenges, and the journey ended painfully. That's what it felt like at the time. But it was through those experiences that I learned how to lament. It was disorienting and uncomfortable. But it's also there that I learned, like Jeremiah would say in chapter 3 of Lamentations, that the Lord's loving kindness is unceasing. His compassions are unfailing. He is faithful. I experienced new and renewed friendships, new communities of faithful believers who helped me pray more honestly. Once in prayer with my friends, I had the most powerful experience of seeing God dancing over the city of Jerusalem, which for me was the source of my turmoil and desire and pain. And so all the dreams and experiences and the people I loved there still belonged to him and were not lost to me. It's as though I were reacquainted with a God who spans this life and the next life in joy and energy and vitality, whose word is now and forever, but I experienced it as a word for me. And because of that, I was able to open up my eyes and my hands and my mouth and my heart and re-engage with what I felt was lost. We are not meant to be numb we are not meant to be narrow or shallow in our emotional life. We're not meant to withdraw. We're meant to have durable faith, real connection with God and others. I wish it were easier, but that's not what's promised. But what is promised is that Jesus will be with us even until the end of the age. Amen.